what's happening, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to episode four of the Carbide Podcast with Phil Whipple. I've been fortunate enough to call Phil a great friend for the better part of a decade. He has a lot of knowledge about the ins and outs of promoting race events and has had a front row seat for the peaks and valleys of the sport of snowcross over the last 20 years. Phil also works in media and PR, so it should go without saying that he will talk circles around me for the length of this show. I hope you guys enjoy it. Welcome back, everybody, to the Carbide Podcast. This is episode four. My name is Spencer DeLabrier, and I'm your host. Really excited about tonight's guest. When I started this podcast, there was a handful of people I really wanted to have on because they would bring really unique perspectives about the sport that some of us don't always consider. Tonight, he's the owner of Whipple Motorsports Media. He's a staff writer at Race on Texas, where he covers local short track racing all across the state. But pertinent to this podcast, from 2003 to 2018, he served as the public relations manager for both Rock Maple Racing and East Coast Snowcross. This is Mr. Phil Whipple. Phil, how you doing? I'm doing really well, Spencer. Good evening to you. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. So we're here to talk about sleds, of course, but a huge part of your career and your passion is definitely auto racing. So is it safe to assume that your passion for racing as a whole might have started with four wheels and not two skis? Yeah, that's a really safe assumption, my friend. I uh, got taken to the famed Oxford 250 when it was only like its fourth or fifth year. My dad took me to the Oxford 250 in July of 1979. In fact, what an anniversary we're coming up on. We're coming up on late August this year, ironically, of the 50th anniversary of that great race. But dad took me to the 250 in July of 79, and I kind of knew right then and there that was the sport that for me. That I was uh, consumed by the sights and sounds and the smells and the officials and the amount of cars and the speed and the magnitude of that event. So I was a short track fan from then on. Uh, but really, before I started working inside the fences of that sport, I actually had my fingers into snowmobile racing, Spencer, a little bit first, just not by a long shot, but I announced a grass drag event in the fall of 1991. I was asked to do an ice oval race uh, in January of 92 up in West Danville. And then I did one of the early RMR races at the Caledonia County Fairgrounds in February of 92. Uh, but yes, technically, I was a fan of stock car racing, you know, from 79 on heavily and never really dreamt I'd get as involved as I am in it now. But I did actually have a microphone in my hand and sled racing before I jumped into cars. Oh, I didn't know that. So you're you're a snow guy first then for sure. Oh, I am. Uh, you know, from the Northeast Kingdom, like you, brother, sleds were a way of life up there. So we had sleds from years on. Dad had sleds from the early 60s. And so, yeah, sleds were a way of life for us. So I'm an old, old sled head. My first sled was a 67 Olympic, my friend, far before you were a gleam in an eye, I believe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've I've definitely gotten into the, uh, the vintage stuff myself a little bit, Phil. My birthday gift this past year was a 77 Scorpion Sting. So I'm trying to relive some of those glory years as much as I can. That's awesome, buddy. I'm, you have, having an appreciation for snowmobiling history makes me smile, young man. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. So it sounds kind of similar to your story that most of us did was it really started with our fathers introducing us to, to a sport. So your family must have been avid race fans in some capacity, right? Yeah, they sure were. Henry Frank Whipple was a hardcore stock car fan, Spencer. Dad raced 
coops, the old pre-war coops, a little bit in the mid-1950s at a little oval carved out of a pasture, what they called Webster Flats in Linden, Vermont back then, and, and he was right into it. And it ran to number 82 because his birthday was August 2nd, eighth month, second day. I have a nice picture of him hanging out of the pasture window in the pits of that old coop. I'll send it to you sometime. It's phenomenal. Yeah, dad, dad's love of short truck racing he instilled in me. And then he worked uh, the year before I was born. He worked as a scorer at Northeastern Speedway in, in Waterford in 1960. The man really loved racing. And uh, he worked as a scorer up in a tiny little tower alongside an announcer many of you have heard of, maybe from Central Vermont named Ken Squire back in the day. And so dad loved it. Yeah, he's the one that got me in, dude, and uh, got me hooked on the sport. He probably, ne neither one of us ever involved realized I'd get as involved in the racing side of snowmobiling as he was on the trail side. Keep in mind, Henry has a trail named after him in the Northeast Kingdom. There's the Henry Whipple Memorial Trail up in the St. Johnsbury, Lindenville area and has mm -hmm. been for years since I proposed it to Vast. And I'd like to think I made a contribution to short track race. And we both made contributions to our passion, Spencer, you could say. <laughs> uh, I feel like you've done a little bit more than I have, Phil, but I certainly appreciate the recognition. Well, thank you, buddy. You know, you have the heart for it and uh, you've got to carry it on. When us old dubs are done, we'll rely on young men like you to carry this ball forward, Spencer. Well, that's kind of, I mean, I'd said it in my introduction to this podcast, but that's a big goal of mine is I feel like our sport, particularly snowcross and snowmobile racing and the industry as a whole, it's so small and there's not a huge crop of younger people like myself who are interested in hearing those stories and keeping them alive. So that's a, a big goal of this program is to is to keep those stories alive. Well, thank you, buddy. I, I have a, what you might say a handful or a sack full of stories, <laughs> and I'm more than happy to share some of them with you this evening, my friend. Love it. Love it. So, I mean, you kind of touched on it a little bit, but with your dad working so much in, in racing and in, in scoring and media a little bit, it seemed like that was kind of a natural progression for you was to kind of get into to racing and in media in some way, but was there also a drive for you to, to race yourself? Were you trying to build a racing career as well? Never. I, I never had, I can honestly say, I never had the desire to climb into one of these things. I, I've just been a fan of what's called competition. People have asked me for years, man, who do you like in an act and who do you like in pass and who's your favorite? And back when I did follow NASCAR, who's your favorite? I never had a favorite at all, and nor did I ever have the desire to suit up and climb in one. I'm just a fan of competition. I simply like to watch the things go around on the short tracks, whether it's dirt or, or asphalt and, and side by side and, and test of man and machine. I like that aspect of it. And I also love the human interest aspect of it, Spencer. What's kept me involved for over three decades now, both both here in New England and now down in Texas and Louisiana and Oklahoma and Arkansas, is the human side of it, the hearing the stories, the learning the people's background, the getting that response from when I show them just a little love and a little recognition for their efforts. That's why I write all those feature stories, 50 features a year, is to give those guys recognition for those efforts. And that's why I'm still doing this, to meet those people and to hear those stories and to give them the ink, buddy. That's what I, old Phil loves to do. And it's so enjoyable, so rewarding. Well, you've been involved with it for a really long time, but everybody has to have their humble beginnings. What was your first real job in be it reporting or, or media coverage of any form of racing? Man, from my first visit into the pit area at Oxford in 91, I knew I wanted to work inside the fences. So I got that in my head that uh, I wanted it to happen. That was in the fall of 91, I guess probably an October race or September race in Oxford. And I jumped on and I started making calls. I found the editor, Bush North Series editor at the time of Speedway Scene and, and uh, 
he happened to tell me they were looking for a columnist for certain short tracks and stuff. So in January of 92, I started writing a weekly column for Speedway Scene called Vermont Vibrations. And I covered the action at Groveton at Northeastern Speedway. When I went over to Thunder Road a lot, and I went down to Bradford at Bear Ridge. And I traveled to Bush North Circuit because I was kind of really into Bush North deal. And I knew I wanted to be a part of that. By the way, I spent the rest of the 90s and heavily involved in Bush North representing some of the top teams with sponsors and stuff and writing proposals and writing press releases and traveling with the late Alan Avery and the Faddens and all that. It just was mind numbing the things I got to do in Bush North in the nineties. But I, I started writing for Speedway scene in 92. And then next year I started getting paid by two outfits by Alan Avery to write press releases for the Tic Tac Oldsmobile race team driven by Robbie Crouch and uh, Dean Nardi's trackside magazine wanted me to start writing feature stories for his magazine. And so, I did that as well. And so I, I was lucky, Spencer. Doors started swinging wide open for me frequently right from the early 90s on in short track racing. And they saw my interest, my passion, my ability to write and speak, I guess. But And so they called me. I kept getting the phone, kept blowing up all through the 90s. And I had no problem getting work and gigs in short track racing all through the 90s. I was very fortunate. But that's how I got rolling with this thing. I went from a trade paper hack and a PR writer to eventually getting hired by the Sun Journal in 2000. Within a few years, they actually molded me into a bona fide AP journalist. And now I got some awards on the wall from the Associated Press. I'm very blessed the path I've been on, buddy. Short track racing has been really good to me. I, I'm, I'm sort of shocked this little hayseed from St. Jay actually still doing this stuff. <laughs> really, Spencer, I'm very shocked at the opportunities that have come my way, but I've shown the interest and the commitment to it. Well, I think more than anything, Phil, that shows, despite all the accolades, you know, there's a lot of humility there, you know, like a lot of us, I think when we just kind of step back and, you know, amidst all the, the stress and the pressure of, of our everyday day jobs, when we just take a second and step back and look at all we've accomplished, sometimes it just blows our minds. Yeah. Cause you and I come from a very rural area, buddy, where, you know, you could either get out of there and do something or you could hang around the kingdom and hope to be a plumber or electrician or work for a hospital or something. I mean, face it, that's not the land of economic opportunity, any of the <laughs> Northeast Kingdom, whether you use a hootnik from St. Jay, East Beck or up Newport and Derby line where you folks come from, right? Mm -hmm. Are you from Newport, sir? I am from Newport. Yeah, I thought so. The Lake Mint from Agbog boy. Well, no, I, mm -hmm. I just love you kingdom boys like me. You're a hayseed, but I knew you had a brain from day one and, and your only limit would be the effort you put forth and you continue to make effort to this day. So isn't it amazing when you do make a little commitment and an effort one one can do? Blows my mind every day, Phil, every day. Yeah. All right. We'll, we'll get back on track, brother. But yeah. <laughs> thanks for asking. I just, I just pressed, I just felt like getting involved with the sport and I was lucky enough to get involved in speedway scene. And that column, that Vermont vibrations column gave me a little name recognition. And like I say, people recognize perhaps, that I had an ability to write and a passion for the sport. And so uh, I tried to leverage opportunities from then on. I tr that's, that's, well, that's the key to life, isn't it? Is leveraging opportunities without being greedy and offending anybody. So I tried to leverage opportunities and, and here I am. Well, it seems like you always put in the work and you're always looking to learn, but there's always mentors in the space, people that we can learn from. Did you have any major mentors once you first got into to the space? I did, buddy. I, I was lucky that uh, in the early 90s, when I started writing and showing an interest, the late Bob Pollan, who at the time was uh, PR director for Bush North, he kind of took me under his wing and saw my interest and taught me about the business side of the sport. At the time, he was also doing a lot of work with Joe Bessie and AC Delco and Auto Palace and those guys. And he showed me how the business side of the sport 
uh, operated in. And I got lucky and met Callie Oaks, who was a world, still is a world-class sports writer, and, and Steve Soloway from the, used to write for the Press Herald. And so I had this guy teaching me about the business side of sports, Bob Pollan, and then I had Callie Oaks and Steve Soloway teaching me about the journalism side and how to actually write and cover the sport and stuff. And so, yeah, I did have mentors. I did have some guys who liked me and bothered to teach me some things. Uh, it was long before all the real detailed stuff about writing I learned in my in my Sun Journal days, but at least in my early days, yes, I did have guys that realized I belonged in the sport and they did kind of coach me and guide me along, Spencer. It was a tremendous advantage to know those guys. Well, I'd imagine even now, looking back on all your success, there's still some media professionals or, or even great voices in the announcing space that you still look up to, right? Oh, definitely. And and you hit upon the other day, one that I will always admire, the late Robin Miller was a one-of-a-kind journalist. Talk about passion for motorsports and depth mm -hmm. of knowledge. There was no other guy like him. And there's a guy that's still very much with us who's gray in the beard like myself. And from Vermont, I might add, who's my number one media guy and a dear friend is Mr. Dave Moody. Uh, I recently even got Dave well, last year, I think last fall, got Dave to go on my buddy's show out of Austin. I got him on a revved up sports show and the host and co-host about shit the pants because they said, Whipple, how did you get Dave Moody on our show? I said, I'm from Vermont and I've been around media a while, boys. So it was cool as hell. It was a, a great source of great pride for me, Spencer, to be able to get Mr. Dave Moody on that radio show in Austin. And, and they, they shocked that he, he shocked them and he said, boys, how are you doing? And he had a hell of a conversation with him and he talked me up and it was wicked. That guy Moody's been talking me up since I started writing in 92 when he hosted the Inside Groove on WDEV. AM and FM, he used to talk me up as an early columnist. He used to say Speedway scene was mostly full of shit. But he said, then there's that columnist, that new columnist over in the Northeast Kingdom, that Phil Whipple guy. He said, he tells it like it is. He's factual. He knows what fact checking is. He writes it like it is. And that guy, he said, his columns are worth reading. And that was back in like 92 or three. And so Dave's been in my corner for decades now. And as you can imagine, the status that man has achieved in motorsports media, he's kind of like my number one guy. Well, I was going through some of your, your pictures and putting together some information for the show. And I did see a picture with you and, and Ken Squire, which I was imagined was at uh, probably Thunder Road. And that to me is still wild because I think of Ken Squire as like this, this monolith in, in the world of racing. Yet some of the people I've talked to, they're like, yeah, he just shows up to the track and he's just a normal guy and you can have a casual conversation. He's just just a regular guy. That's 100% true. Uh, when Ken was still really active, his health is preventing him from attending mm -hmm. as many races at the road now. But when Ken was real active, still very human, very approachable and stuff. That guy respected me through the years, too, like Moody did. And one time I was struggling to sign in at Loudon, and Ken walked in and told the women behind the counter, that guy's all set, sign him in. And so I got a wristband and VIP access, and, and I talked to Ken outside. I said, Ken, you didn't have to do that. He said, you're legit media, Whipple. He said, go have a good time. So I had an infield media pass in by the media center. We went in the park and went and did our thing. And yeah, Squire I, vouched for me once in the infield signing in allowed. And so I, that's, that's a talk about a ultra valuable gentleman to know and have as a friend, him and Moody, you could say are kind of priceless friends. <laughs> that's awesome. So finishing up on kind of the auto side, what's the health overall of American short track racing now? Cause it seems like it's always been big. But it seems like the last couple of years, there's quite a bit of resurgence, particularly with the casual fans. The diehard guys are always going to be there. They're always going to show up and race. The local fans are always going to be there. But the casual people are starting to show a lot more interest in the sport. Yeah, they really are. I, I will tell you, 
wholeheartedly and 100% right now that short track racing is very, very healthy across the board right now, Spencer, particularly on the dirt side. How do I know that? I, I work in dirt now, and this is my fifth year in dirt, and I'm studying it as I work and go along. And so think outfits like the Lucas Oil Late Model Dirt Series, the World of Outlaw Late Models, and Sprints. My entire world down in Texas, dude, we're covering 400 races. This is just an example of a regional outfit that the whole streaming industry is exploding there's a dozen different streamers out there now and they got all kinds of content we're covering over 400 races in four or five states this year ourselves and we specialize in a dozen or 14 partner tracks around texas and louisiana and stuff dirt track racing short track racing is blowing up it's thriving i'm talking even weekly shows that i cover every single friday and saturday with 100 or 120 cars in the pits in five or six classes and so short track racing is happening it is in the midst of a resurgence buddy and i will ex explain it like you know my a lot of them are fans of my age bracket buddy because we abandoned nascar quite a number of years ago and we're going to get to some of the reasons why when we switch over into the snowcross world spencer but my age bracket is let go of nascar now because the marquee names are gone and the mm -hmm. sport has changed dramatically in the way it's presented to fans we've simply lost interest and returned all of our focus back to the short tracks and so all of us all the old Graybeard Whipple types, they're back looking for short track entertainment now. And so whether it's Raceland Texas they subscribe to, or whether it's Dirt Vision, or whether it's Flow Racing, or whether it's Racing America, regardless of your preference and your region and your type of racing surface, you can just pay your dollars and get that now and have one of them apps on your big screen, Roku or whatever, and punch it up so easily. Now tell your Roku app what you want to watch and that short track racing pops up. So we're getting our fix now through that. And that's why short track racing is so happening. They've made it kind of easier to access than it used to be, right? And so now it's all right in our living rooms. And I think that's part of the reason it's thriving, Spencer. Well, it's so pivotal too. I mean, the for a long time, whether it was TV coverage or anything like that, there's so many areas, particularly, I mean, you and I are from the Northeast. Outside of Loudoun, people get very few opportunities to ever actually see high level stock car or dirt car racing. So these local short tracks need the support. And for a lot of people, that's where that's where the dream starts. That's where the passion starts. I'm sure for a lot of people, it was being brought to to a major speedway. But like like yourselves, a lot of it started. Yeah, my dad took me to the local short track and I saw people racing and I knew that's what I wanted to do. That's where it starts for the future of the sport. Well, that's exactly right. Got to have that initial trigger and initial activation. And you're right. A lot of us, it was from dad. But yeah, now suddenly dad and I used to have conversations about how tough it was to get live racing on our TVs. And he'd be amazed if Henry Whipple was still with us. He'd be amazed at the volume of killer quality short track racing from around the nation. I can just punch up with a couple of pushes of a little remote now. And he'd be thrilled because he'd say, boy, what tremendous exposure that gives that element of the sport. And he'd be right on because... They never had that. You know, that element of the mm -hmm. sport never had exposure beyond the people that were the butts in the grandstand. Now, mm -hmm. as a promoter and even as a, a racer with more than just a local Joe's grad sponsor, you can offer those people a heck of a lot more widespread exposure through the subscribers at Race on Texas or whatever other streamer than you used to in the past. So you're really giving him far more exposure. And if you work your social media stuff and get folks, fans that follow you activated with it, you might actually give him a little return, a little ROI, a little return on that investment. So the the, the tools now are there to uh, to keep it thriving and working. The only element of it that we fight with all the time 
is those nighttime keyboard warriors with two or three beers in them and they get pissy about whatever experience they just had at the track and of course the promoters are, are reaching a, a, a filled up to here point with that stuff that element of the sport they don't realize that those keyboard warriors but that stuff chips away on track promoters they ain't making a shitload of money anymore anyway mm-hmm. the profit margin keeps shrinking so they got to be kind of careful i hope some listeners of this that also maybe follow all the racing will back off at night on facebook on those people because they're really working hard to keep our sport alive but uh, other than that little element that little bitchy element of the sport and you have that across the board in racing but other than that little element really I think, buddy, short track racing is happening right now. On the asphalt side, when those ex-Cup guys bought the Cars Tour, you know that that it's going to survive for years to come. They've got that passion for short track racing. You've got great stars like Caden Honeycutt. I know I'm saying him because he's from Texas, but you've got a lot of young talent in the Cars Tour. You've got quite a bit of talent in the Sunoco Super Series. And, of course, Pass is in tremendous hands here in New England with Mr. Tom Mayberry. He launched Pass North way back in 2001. And look where he is. Look at the talent, the talent that's come out of there since then. Now he, he's getting, and he owns Oxford too, by the way. Now he's getting ready to have his big pass showcase event, the 50th annual 250 in late August. That'll just be 10, 12,000 people. There are people coming from all over the country, two countries, Canada. In fact, Derek Lynch is coming back, the winner from 1994. It's going to be a huge international celebration this year. So Pass and Oxford are in great hands. Act is in just equally as good a hands with Chris Michaud, the former racer who's owning and directing operations at Acton over at White Mountain and at Thunder Road now. And man, if you've ever seen the money that his backer put into Thunder Road, that's a showplace stadium of a facility now, top notch as any asphalt oval can be in uh, high atop Quarry Hill in Barrie, Vermont. And uh, it's just happening. So we're so blessed here. My Texans are so jealous, buddy, because asphalt racing is almost a thing of the past down there. It's primarily dirt and they got one little oval left in houston and there's like a half a dozen maybe eight races a year down there and so it's almost extinct down there and they're always telling me whipple you are so lucky with the rich asphalt racing <laughs> culture and i know you want to shift to snowcross now and we'll do that but we're very blessed here and you knew that too from being a race fan here from new england we have some great racing here in new england spencer we do and it's very yeah we'll get to sleds in a second but yeah the the racing scene for for cars in new england is like surprisingly strong because it's not it's not kind of built into our culture or our heritage up there it's not something that everybody did yet year after year the series series continue to be strong the driver count is still there it's it's cool to see and i'm hoping it sticks around for a while me too buddy we're on that uh, you know you used the right term before we started this topic resurgence i hope that uh, flourish continues and it, and it should it should. I don't see why. And we bounced back good after the uh, pandemic, of course, put us all into neutral for a while. But it's back in high gear now, and it's it's really happening. If only Snowcross was as healthy as short track racing, we'd all be styling. <laughs> well, speaking of Snowcross, this is a, a snowmobile podcast, so we do have to all touch right. on some Snowcross stuff. But Of course. So back in 2003, you first started with rock maple racing which was the sanctioning body at the time for new england racing then became east coast snowcross northeast snowcross circuit things like that but at the time it was rock maple how did you first end up in in that role and and how did that relationship for you start so you you just dig into story after story and elaborate <laughs> um i had been trying to this i'll back up just a little bit before the minnesota years i had been actually trying to become pr director for rmr 
for Don Fink, the original founder, Don Fink, out of Justinville, mm-hmm. Vermont, since I covered it, was asked to cover an RMR race at Loon Mountain in December. Now I'm going to start to get to your territory. I was asked to cover a race at Loon Mountain in December of 2000 by the, uh, the trade paper I was writing for at the time, New England Race. And I was pretty taken by it. I went to Loon in 2000, and man, was there tractor trailers and Gula with a Warnert sled and a Warnert hauler and all these mm-hmm. big teams and stuff, the morons flying around. I said, holy shit, has this sport come a long way since I was announced to Caledonia County in 92? What happened to this? Of course, the suspensions had advanced. Everything had really come quite a ways in eight years. You know, so by December 2000, RMR was jumping. So I began to to get have to think about, hey, you got to take this to the media, dude. You got quite a thing going here. This is very spectator friendly. Let me start writing some press release for you. And he hesitated because I think he kind of knew that he was nearing the end of his deal. I think Mm -hmm. he kind of knew he was not far from selling the company, Spencer. And so Don didn't go that way. So I reached out to new series owner, Chuck Minnesota. Chuck bought it in May of 2002. He was when he bought RMR. So 2002 and 03 was his going to be his first winner. And I reached right out to him immediately. He said, I was pretty close to doing this work with writing for Fink. How about you? And he said, Phil, give me a winner to get a handle on this before we start a PR campaign and take it to the media. And in September of 2003, I got a phone call from Chuck. He said, you still interested in doing that? I had a pretty good first winner. And in, in September that month, I went down and met with Tara Saxon, and I got hired. And in mid-2000, they said, yeah, you're the PR director for RMR now. What do we do with you now? Well, now what the hell do you do? Now what, tell us what you're supposed to be doing. So I said, well, we've got to start pumping up our schedule here. What the hell? When are we going to announce a schedule? Let's get on this deal. So it was a kind of a weird, meager start that RMR had no PR prior to mm-hmm. me. And then I wrote every press release for that sanctioning body through three sets of owners for 15 years it was nuts how that all turned about but that's how i got rolling dude i just stayed after fink he said no and i stayed after minnesota he put me off for a year but then he gave me a chance and lo and behold i did have something to bring to the table and uh, yeah i would go on to survive three sets of owners chuck sold it to eric scott and bob roscoe they kept me on and they also kept mike key on i might say the webmaster and photographer who was world class and then they sold it to kurt gagney and by gary he kept me on too so pretty nuts pretty pretty nuts and i heard you did a little cross country stuff as you know I, when tara saxton stepped back into the sled racing world with that brought mm-hmm. rmr back cross country i helped her i had to support her with the start she gave me so i jumped back in and did some pr for her too but yeah that's how i got into that business dude it was quite a humble beginnings but Boy, with the late Stan Fitz, we used to work with her. He used me a lot, and we talked a lot and bounced ideas back and stuff. Then, of course, John Longbook, when he got in control for Roscoe and Scott and ECS, he really used me a lot and, and talked to me a lot and bounced ideas off me and worked with me and said, Phil, I'm thinking about taking it to this venue or this market area. Should I approach this? And what should we write? And how should we do this? And Sean got me kind of super involved and ran a lot of stuff by me. And so all of a sudden, I found myself quite involved and snowcross for a number of years but i will tell you spencer now no regrets at all the heavily more i got involved with stan fitz and tara and chuck and and and, and Longbook, the more i enjoyed it i thrived on it they'll tell you sean little uh sean sean will tell you and uh, josh little who worked with kirk gagney mm-hmm. for years they'll tell you uh my passion for a lot of years was all about that shit from september october right straight through april that's all i thought about yeah, for myself, those early years when you must have been involved were kind of my first real experiences to to snowcross. And I'm sure you remember them, but with me being from from Newport, uh, every time the series would come to the Barton Fairgrounds, everybody in town was there, and and I was 
good friends with with Robert and Rainy Durushi. Those guys would build the track a couple years. They'd bring in all, they'd haul in all the snow, and those guys would work on the track and stuff like that. So my first exposure to snowcross was Rock Maple at Barton, and it just felt like, at least in those days, the ads were all over the radio, the newspapers. Everybody in my hometown of five thousand people seemingly was at that race. It just it just seemed like a different time back then. It just seemed so much bigger. It was. It, it was huge then. You, you didn't have this consumption for scrolling social media and for doing other stuff. It was presented. So the product was really spectator friendly. The product is well promoted. You're right. It, it was all over the newspapers, the posters, the radio, that stuff. It was in your face. And so you thought, what the hell is this Snowcross? What's this in my business? And before long, as we're going to talk about here in my highlights and memories of the thing rmr had a couple big things going for it during those peak years spencer it had brand identity everybody had heard about rmr and knew what it was all about we achieved wicked well the things really did long before me and chuck but we really bolstered the brand identity of rmr that rolled right off the tongue and people knew rock maple racing that's the snowcross circuit those guys are good it had wicked brand identity and it had the marquee names what kind of made that circuit why, you know, it was touted as national quality racing at a regional level. It kind of was because we had Chris Vincent and Gula. That's where them guys mm-hmm. came from in the early days for riding for racing and getting their start for Don Fink. And then when Chuck took it over, the Borons were still big and stuff. And mm-hmm. you had the Luzinskis. And man, who can ever forget the battles between, I don't know if you remember them much, buddy. I hope you do. The tremendous pro battles between the great Danny Poirier and Simon Belzeal. Those mm-hmm. guys were two of the best snowcross racers that ever raced in the Northeast, period, to this day. And so mm-hmm. we just it had marquee names and it had tremendous promotion. And so, yeah, it was bigger back then, dude. It was happening. And we'll never achieve, even if it, it's brought back, even if sanctioned sled racing is brought back in the Northeast, we'll probably never match that time in December of mm-hmm. 2003, my first event for Chuck, where we had 903 entries. Wow. Yeah. It, it just, the, the rider count and the, the competitiveness, like I, I can't remember the year. It must've been like 06 or 07. I don't remember the venue, but you might feel where coming down to the, the last race of the year, it was Danny Poirier, CW, Sir Jane and Jason Boron. And there was like, three or four points separating all those guys going into that last round. And then just to add some flavor, Matt Marin comes out of WPSA for that weekend on a, on a skidoo and then just, just waxes the field that weekend and just throws a wrench in the whole plan. Like that kind of stuff was the racing. I remember when I was a kid was, was those top names and that level of competitiveness. Yeah. So you were exposed to a Spencer during its peak then. Cause I was, those two guys I just mentioned, Danny and, and Simon, and, and then obviously whenever Marin came, that half pint little frog from the from Quebec, <laughs> I never seen such thirty pounds of Frenchman mm-hmm. throw a sled around. I'm just picking. I'm big friends and big respect for Matthew Marin. What an athlete that young man was, and boy, when he was in his peak on a sled, I think he won like a Duluth National and Pro Stock back in the day. That guy could really compete on the national level, mm-hmm. and yeah was pretty good. Matthew came in and really rode. We were blessed. We, we kind of did have national caliber racing on a regional level going on here in the Northeast for quite a number of years. And I think we were very fortunate. And back in those times, particularly kind of the, the early 2000s, prior to 2008, we had better snow conditions, pricing on, on gas and sleds. Everything was cheaper. Plus, you kind of touched on it a little bit earlier where this is pre kind of streaming and pre-cell phone where 
a snowcross race really was like a family outing. It was something where you say, hey, it's Saturday. We got nothing going on. Hey, I heard there's a snowmobile race in town. We should go check it out. Where as it's evolved over the years and people have a shorter attention span, the people who show up to the race are typically the people who kind of knew the race was happening already and were going to plan to go anyway. But right. yeah, yeah, back then it was just, it was a family outing. And anytime I would go to races as a kid, it was, everybody was there. Like all your friends were there. All the local families were there. Just, it was a, it was a different experience back then. And maybe it's just me thinking of my childhood, thinking it was greater, but you know, just seemed very different. No, it was different. It, that's what's killed it, buddy. You, you nailed it once again. You're so accurate with these terms. The, the reduction and almost now non-existence of the American attention span. It's what we all fight now in the entertainment business. And I'm in a short track race. So what do you mean? You're not an entertainer. You're in short. Yeah. And don't forget, short track racing is entertainment. We're competing for entertainment dollars. And that's what it is. And you have no. So what all of us in this, no matter whether it's car racing, sled racing, anything, music, whatever. If you don't shorten your product that you're presenting to John Q. Public these days, they're going to lose interest on you, whether you're playing a blues on a stage, whether you're hosting an auto race, whether you're an NFL. They'd spent. The guy told me once the NFL spent millions on a study. That's why they shortened their games down. They had to pull their games down in length because in order to make the TV ratings work for the one o'clock and the four o'clock games, they had to shorten the games. Plus, they realized their fans were all staring at their phones after two or two and a half hours. And so the American attention span is about gone. And unfortunately, it has changed the way we present any type of entertainment to the consumer. You better darn well within a three hour time frame these days, you better get your marquee names on the track or on the stage, have them do what they got to do within a two and a half or three hour time frame, or the phones are going to come out and the minds are going to begin to wander and they'll be scrolling and then they'll see something from their buddies off having a good time somewhere and they begin to think about shit we should be over there we should be we should go do that now we should run they don't have any focus anymore and so they quickly lose interest and so it's, it's about the three hour mark spencer where where the turnoff the cutoff is and boy for a long time snowcross wasn't anywhere near that i gotta tell you one of my biggest observations in that sport i witnessed a long overdue evolution evolution of the sport in the way events were run and presented to fans and it was kind of long overdue we when we went from a very redundant 30 classes down to 15 mm -hmm. and changed it from where all the heats were on saturday and then the sunday finals over to just two separate one-day events that my friend saved snowcross from extinction whether it was on the regional or the national level when they changed it over to a point where if you could only come saturday or you could only come saturday you were still going to see the big names run their heats and their finals which was kind of what you were there for i, I can only come saturday you mean i'm only going to see the heats well i can only come sunday but i want to see qualifying too well now you see two separate programs and by eliminating all that redundancy in the classes you know when you heard me say 903 entries at haystack that was 300 riders usually entering about three classes a piece because there was way too many classes than they needed to be and it was all about that gate revenue that gate cash was a cash cow. It was about entry fees, dude. It was mm -hmm. a cash cow. When they eliminated that redundancy and got this thing down to 15 classes and two separate, it, it really enhanced the way the product was presented to people. And so then it became not only just flying sleds and spectator friendly, then it became fun to go on just Saturday or Sunday because you saw a full show and, and, and the full deal. And you got to see the big dogs and pro and semi-pro or pro light run the two rounds of heats in their finals. That was cool. You went away talking about, whoa, the finals and whoa, and flying sleds, Hibbert and Morgan and stuff. It was big. And 
that that what I think is the biggest improvement in evolution I witnessed. That's my biggest takeaway is when they finally changed the way it was delivered to the to the fans. The product was delivered to consumers. That's what really improved the sport forever. So we kind of rode that that high and rode that growth for a number of years going into the late 2000s and then 2008 major major financial crisis. I'm not going to pretend to know what it was like, Phil, because I was 12, so I was probably playing my Nintendo Wii or something, but I've definitely looked back and it's a notable noticeable difference in all forms of motorsports to the amount of funding, rider count, butts in seats prior to 2008 and then what the sports look like after that. We're all still healthy, but we're never we haven't got back to where we were prior to that. But from your perspective, your job was still the same. You were still trying to get people to show up to the race and watch and buy things and get riders to show up to the event. But post 2008, how did your efforts have to change? Because riders were less willing to spend the money to come out and consumers were less willing to spend the money to come watch. Well, it made it a, a much greater challenge, buddy. We, uh, we sat down, we had some meetings. We said, how are we going to maintain our fan base here? What are we going to do? And when the big name, what hurt us was when the big name riders stepped aside, we didn't have quite the draw. And so our job became to make house somehow to became to make household names out of the rising stars. So we ended up promoting riders heavily like Mike Pilot, for example, who came mm -hmm. over from AT racing. He was one of the first crossover guys. We, we, we realized maybe if we try to tout these newcomers and show show the fans and show the fan base how easy it is to to uh, to get involved in this sport it's not just for refined seasoned pros like that was the perception for a lot of years when i got involved oh them guys are all good you can't have a go race with them them guys are pros well you can't get involved in this we have classes for beginners and stuff and hey look this guy came from four wheeler racing and look how good he is and he's now a pro and stuff and look at him go we had to just shift gears to try to promote new athletes and new guys when the other marquee names stepped aside and then we had to you touched on the shift from mainstream media over to start promoting ourselves on social media when that first became part of it we had to begin to work that heavily in order to draw people and maintain the fan base unfortunately i'll admit right now i dropped the ball with that i wasn't as savvy and aware of the importance of that as i was like certain during my son journal years we thrived on that we had a, even a mantra digital first there was a lot of content over there we put up digital first and then it got ready to paginate and for the print edition because it was important stuff that had to be presented to our readers and so yeah things changed dude so we uh, i dropped the ball on the transition to social media the use of that eventually i got a grip on it and realized and, and started doing better with it but everything changed buddy you're right it sure became a, a, a much more of a challenge and it and became on the other side of things it became a harder challenge to convince the directors of a given venue that mm -hmm. they should have you back because you could they'd ask you well please document your span your fan numbers in recent years at certain venues we'd we'd like to cut your check we'd like to give you a deposit and book a date but we'd like to look at your fan numbers and stuff and how many sponsors do you have involved and how many vendors are going to have and how are we going to do this and who runs what and it became hard, more and more of a challenge to kind of get into venues and stuff but stan fitz again old stan just kept a badger and working away and stan kept it going during the tower years and, and chuck and his brother mark were very good at it but yeah to sum up it was a, a much greater challenge to to get book good venues and fill the schedule and to keep people coming into the grandstands and without nice venues and fans in the stands you have no product yeah and and during that time period as well it's it wasn't as bad then as it frankly is now but we started to see some of the some of the leaner snow years as we got into the early 2010s and we had always raced at ski hills there was always ski hills it just 
particularly towards the end of the year, but you started to see a lot more creativity in the, in the venues. Uh, you know, we, like I said, there's growth in the ski hills, ended up doing a lot of cross promotion with different speedways. We'd raced at a lot of speedways because those guys were just kind of sitting on their hands in the, in the wintertime. So you definitely, you definitely noticed, particularly with the venues that there was a big shift during that time period. It was great point because of all the things I took notes on, you just touched on a couple of places that come to mind, Spencer, that I, we need to talk about. And, and, and one of the gentlemen that I mentioned here a few minutes ago was Sean Longbook. Sean, as we, needed to take ECS to new market areas and get into new market areas and venues. Sean Longbook was a pro at that, a master. He goes up to Plattsburgh and he talks to the mayor and all these people involved with the chamber and stuff. And he says, yeah, you got a big area of land there next to the Crete Civic Center. What a nice place to build a snowcross track. And you, Mr. Mayor, could come and give the command to start engines. And we got this guy, you could interview you. And he touts this thing up and, and we get up there to the Crete Center. And the mayor's there and all these chamber people are there and brian the late brian mulligan's there from ontario and it's a joint event for you know for the canadian for scmx and all mm-hmm. but it's this wicked international event and it just all came together so well and then eventually we moved it over to airborne you touched on racetracks again you're mm-hmm. right on spot we moved it over to airborne speedway in plattsburgh that was huge with with mike and his people over there man yeah they got creative with venues but it always worked if you it's sean proved that it's the groundwork you lay not just the specifics of the venue itself. Yes, that venue has to have room for parking and fans in your pits and and an access to either water or good snow or something. There's basics you got to have. And it's nice if it's near a population and near some restaurants and lodging. But, uh, you know, it's got to be well promoted and it's got to be well timed. And and everything's got to be involved from a community standpoint as well. And again, Sean was a master of that. So those events, I just want to reflect back on those races in Plattsburgh. They were kick-ass. They were badass. We pulled off some great shows there in Plattsburgh, New York. And I thought that was a great market area for us because that's right now, you know, on the edge of the Adirondacks, that's where snowmobile racing should be held, right? Absolutely. And I remember those those couple years where we were doing the uh, the Triple Crown and we would get the crossover from, from SEM and then being Western New York or Eastern New York, Western Vermont. But you'd also get some of the guys from Ontario. So you got CSRA presence at, at those races. And I touched on a little bit. I did a, a my first part was with uh, Lincoln Lemieux, and we touched on some of the guys that showed up to those Triple Crown rounds. Was was ISOC national level talent? So to your point earlier about about Rock Maple being national talent on a regional level, some of those crossover rounds gave us exactly that. Yeah, because that's where them labels came from, dude. The labels mm-hmm. were in that early. You know, when uh, when the late Marcel Fontaine, right, SEM mm-hmm. and all those boys, yeah, the label boys and those guys coming down, they were strong. We knew when they were kids, they were strong. So anytime, and you mentioned CSRA, I think even Ian Hayden came and mm-hmm. raced with us a few times. And that guy has dominated Snowcross in Ontario for decades. He's just the best. One of the guys that I got to interview when I co-hosted a uh, snow, inside Snowcross with Joe Chisholm out of Ontario mm-hmm. for a number of winners, we interviewed Ian and uh, man, that guy's top notch. So yeah, but those were the days, dude. I'm glad you can reflect back on those crossovers because that was some pretty big time sled racing for a Northeast back in the day. Yeah, speaking of Ian Hayden, we've been uh, chatting back and forth, and Ian's going to be one of my guests coming up here pretty soon. So I'm gonna be pretty pumped about that. He's got a, a really cool story, and uh, you know, he's he's had his success here in the u.s as well with a number of the race the factory efforts and the wins he's got here but i think a lot of the americans are blissfully unaware of how successful he was in canada so i'm really excited to kind of bring his his story to everybody too 
it's called pulling back the curtain, Spencer. This mm-hmm. is what you're going to be doing with this thing. You know, you're now you're an audio journalist. I, my, I'm the written word and you're audio and you're pulling back the curtain for people on that don't know these details and these insights on these individuals. So, yeah, when you pull back the curtain on Hayden, there's all kinds of great stuff. And we won't go down the CSRA road, but man, some night you have a conversation with, is it Mike Schmidt that owns London Recreation? He's, Look at he's, all the on, he's, he's on my list, too, because I, and Dude, I'm sure I, I kind of know the sport and some of the personalities mm-hmm. in it. Yeah, Schmidt going to be a hell of a talk because what the support he's given the sport up on the CSRA side over the years on, the, you know, with London Rec. That's just mm-hmm. wicked that you'll have a heck of a conversation with that gentleman as well. Oh, I would imagine it'd be a very... Very similar uh, discussion that we're having right here, Phil, where half of it is stock car racing and half of it's snowmobile racing. Yeah, because that man's pretty heavily involved in that side of it, too. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. Yeah. All right. And you want to you want to ask me about the appeal, the appeal of our sport. How are we going to keep it alive in the future? We'll get to more of that. But really, buddy, and, I, and I'll ask you if you agree, the biggest appeal to this sport always has been and always will be is snowcross. It's it's and Mike Schroeder said it when he was on the microphone with ISOC. It's an all out assault on the senses. It's the sights and the sounds and the smells to me, especially to winter enthusiasts and sledheads. That will always be what keeps us going. It's the colors, the sights, the brands, the sleds we all grew up with, the blatting. I mean, they took that away when they took mods away. But now, realistically, pro open and pro light still blat. They pulled the canister out. It still blats. We have that sound in our ears, the flying brands, the flying sleds, that test of man and machine. And it's they're in the air and more than they're on contact with the snow. And so that that all out to salt, man, I, I think that's will always be the draw to the sport. Yeah, I would agree. And I think for a lot of us that grew up with it, whether it's just snowmobiles or racing as a whole, to us, it seems like such a given. But for instance, my wife did not grow up snowmobiling at all. The first time she ever went to a race was when we started dating. And we uh, her first race she went to was was at Duluth at the National. And when she first sat there to watch the Dominator and heard mod sleds and people flying through the air, it just blew her mind. But to a lot of us, we're Frankly, we're kind of numb to it at this point in time, but for a lot of people that have never experienced it, it really blows your mind the first time. You can't even believe what you're watching at times. No, it's you're right. It it, it is an eye opener for first timers because they have no idea what they're going to be witnessing. What these guys, what these athletes do with four hundred pound sleds. The only element, of course, you don't want to emphasize and don't want to talk about. It. And I've had a few people that I took to the track to turn onto the sport ask me, "Now, wait a minute." This is wicked. But, and I think the late Dick Trickle was the first one to ask when they took him to a snowcross race out in a WSA race. He said, wait a minute, these are 400 pound sleds all flying around with 96 razor sharp picks spinning in them tracks. And guys don't get torn into little pieces of steak meat on a weekend, week to week basis. And we said, okay, Dick, granted, it's a fairly dangerous sport. But no, just don't, don't talk about that part of it. Unfortunately, that aspect of it rears its ugly head. Very, very seldomly, fortunately, and deaths and fatalities and severe injuries and stuff are very, very rare. I was lucky. I only had one kid get severely injured when I was involved with it. Uh, Robert Graber from Alaska. Do you remember that name? Mm-mm. No, Robert Graber came to us from Alaska and raced with us. It was either ECS or RMR, probably RMR back in the day. He got landed on, and I think it hit him so hard and so bad it tore his aorta. Oh, 
Yep. So that man was, uh, I don't know if he walks to this day. I shouldn't speak ill because I, I know he's with us still, but Robert Graeber's with us, but I, I doubt he's racing anything anymore. He, Robert Graeber got landed on. And unfortunately, in our early days of RMR, I was in a newsroom one night at the Sun Journal and got randomly called by Chuck Minasali. And I knew we probably had a problem. And out in Malone, we'd had a fatality. We'd had a gentleman mad at punch it headed for the tabletop and he jumped way too high and went way too far. And uh, I think his chest hit the bars or something, you know, and it was, uh, he was gone before the ambulance people got to him, I think. So this every once in a while, the evil side of the sport rears its ugly head, but fortunately it's very, very rare, man, that medical unit, they got on site there with, with ISOC. That's so valuable now. And, and of course we always are very careful about having trained EMTs here in, in New England too. Uh, but fortunately, man, a lot of guys race, a lot of races jump and fly and go and stuff. And the, and the percentage of injuries is probably 0.0 something percent. And so we're lucky. Would you agree, buddy, that the sport goes on and really overall, the safety record is pretty darn good. It really is. And, and I, I didn't put this on the list, but I, it makes me think, and I do want to ask you because for us injuries, you know, for racers or people in the industry, injuries are part of the sport, but we, we recognize our actual record and how seldom it actually happens. But for the general public, people who are not into extreme sports in any way, that's all they seem to focus on is, is the injuries and the crashes and things like that from a PR perspective and a promoter perspective. How do you fight that against the, the average consumer that you want to show up and watch the race? But you know that's kind of the first thing they think of the sport is well people get hurt and people are crazy how do you how do you fight that yeah i quickly point out that crossing the street is extremely dangerous and that's a fact and that's just i know it sounds cliche and it's dumb but really that there's stats that show more people get hit crossing the street in urban areas than they do on, on airplanes falling out of the sky i mean really you look at the whole transportation industry more people get run over crossing the street no it, it's just everything's dangerous there's an element of risk everywhere and there fortunately though there are those who out go out in power sports and like to push the envelope and sometimes when you take a motorcycle or snowmobile or a race vehicle and push the envelope with it you break traction or you lose balance or you make contact with other vehicles that and incidents occur and fortunately that is fairly rare and so and guys don't go out there looking to thrash into each other you know they don't go out there looking to get hurt or looking to happen this is kind of an unintentional rarity so i just say look it's don't happen a lot if you count the amount of races we've executed without an injury and then talk about the ones where we have it's a hundred to one clean ones compared to ones with that are stricken with injuries and, and even crashes. We just, it's not a crash filled sport. It's just not, it's not filled with that. And I, I had to deal with that. I cringed when I heard about that fatality because I hung up the phone with Chuck in a newsroom. Fortunately I was right at a newsroom and I went right to the managing editor and I said, I just heard from my owner in Snowcross and we've had a fatality in New York state. How do I deal with this? He said, well, the first thing you want to do, he said, when your phone starts ringing from the media in New York is the last thing you want to do is hide. You need to prepare a written statement on behalf of Chuck Minasali and Rock Maple Racing and present it to him and get him to approve it. You guys have to put a, a written statement up regarding that fatality of one of your racers on your website. And then you have to direct a few phone calls to Chuck because some of the media is going to want to ask him if he was on site and what he witnessed and, and stuff. And so I had to deal with that. I had to suddenly deal with the media all over me about a fatality of one of my races, one of our races. And so I, uh, I, I didn't hide. I answered the phone when they called and I told them, yes, unfortunately, we've had an incident and our thoughts and prayers are with the family and the deceased. And we just had an unfortunate, bizarre thing. And I didn't get into details with them. That's how you protect the family's privacy. But I told them it was just an unfortunate death. And 
and, and extended our sympathies. And that's kind of all you can do. It's a tough side of the sport, any element of the sport. But man, that was the rude awakening when to get that call. I said, Phil, we've had a horrible thing happen here. They just took a guy away deceased from one of our races. And I said, wait a minute, that's not that's not part of the bargain here. This is snowmobile racing. We're not supposed to kill mm -hmm. people. So it was a shocker, buddy. But sometimes that stuff happens. And I know WSA back in the day, Joe Duncan and those guys, they were there, I think, when TJ Gula got hit. He was just mm -hmm. getting up from the ball and got wailed. And it really, like, you know, I think it ended his career. It's almost snapped his neck. A basal or skull fracture, like what killed Dale Earnhardt. So Gula was real lucky to live and stuff. And you have to deal with that stuff once in a while. That element is going to crop up sometimes. And how you cope with it and handle it publicly and move on determines you. That defines you. That how you deal with it. And WSA did a good time with that at the at the time, and I'd like to think we handled our fatality well with RMR, but I was sheepish. I will use that term when the, when the media called. I was a little nervous, Spencer, as you can imagine. Yeah, I would. I can definitely imagine trying to trying to navigate that that situation. And I just uh, last night I did a, an interview with Blaine Stevenson. He's a ice oval guy. He's won Eagle River four times now. He's he's top of his game, but he also had a pretty bad crash earlier in his career and frankly could have lost his life in that in that crash very easily but it was interesting you know the racer's perspective of yeah of course i'm going to come back of course i'm going to race of course i'm going to be there versus the family's perspective who is like absolutely not i'm staying as far away as i can from this sport i don't want anything to do with it anymore and it's it's a it's a constant battle for us who who enjoy the sport yeah it sure is buddy it's uh just something we have to kind of deal with. Fortunately, the athletes will always be committed. Their their heart and their passion will never be questioned because that they wouldn't be doing it in the first place. But yeah, their tendency, like you say, is to go back into it. And some of my guys that have had incidents in, on dirt, that's the first thing their family say is, "We're switching to a different hobby now, right?" Mm -hmm. But uh, but it, but by the same token, their girlfriends and wives usually acquiesce because if that's what the man does, if that's his passion, you know, it's crazy <laughs> to stop him from it. It's hard to stop him from. If he's committed to it, he's going to want to climb back in that car or get back on that sled and go. That ice oval world, that's a, that's a shrinking entity now, isn't it, Spencer? Yeah, uh, you know, I got into it a little bit with Blaine, and it's 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 there. It's growing a little bit, but he's de it's definitely a smaller core group of guys within snowmobiling as a whole. And snowcross typically gets all the attention, and then cross country comes right behind that. Hill climb is getting a lot of attention these days just because that's where the OEMs are putting a lot of their efforts from snowmobile engineering standpoint. So, but yeah, very, very similar uh, to kind of short track racing where ice oval is the guys, it, they're all family teams. They're all going to, they're going to be there no matter what they're going to put in their own money, no matter what. And the sport really survives with those guys. So it's definitely important to kind of grow those categories and get more people interested so that they can, they can prosper long, long into the future and once the the current crop of guys retires there's still good people behind him to, to take the flag i'm glad yeah there's a, a young girl that uh, races ice ovals that you'll probably speak with us sometime too sabrina blanchett and i know you know that name that's mm -hmm. that's part of the future of ice oval racing because sabrina's successful in ice oval racing as well i've seen her race many times at the grand prix de Valcou, and uh, mm -hmm. she's really something so yeah ice oval there's core people that love it and hopefully those people will keep it propelled forward because as you and i both know it's tremendously exciting if anybody who's mm -hmm. been to eagle river or to or grand prix de Valcour a few times it's just mind-numbing to watch those events those sleds those champs let's race around the oval it's killer buddy so where are we at on snowcross dude it's uh <laughs> she's done some evolving now what is this when i tuned in when did we go from 
lap number of lap heats into up against the time. Now it's like timed motos. I, is that new for last winter or to start the previous winter? It started, I want to say, maybe, eight, ago, maybe eighteen or nineteen, something like that. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah, and it a lot of it too. So I don't, I don't know how much you follow motocross and supercross, Phil, but it, it, it's a very similar argument that people were making there because they went from laps to timed because they were doing the same amount of of laps throughout the whole series, and okay. it, it was re, it was regardless of the track you were on. So you could run twenty laps on a really long track and have like a half an hour main event, or you could have twenty laps on a track like Deadwood, and your whole main event was like ten minutes long. So a lot of it was a to get consistency in the length of races, but also, I mean, you can appreciate you're talking about like TV time and, and streaming windows and schedules. You got a you got a fixed time period where you're having your race. So it well, that's what it was all about. It was regulating the time that that product airs on. Okay, <laughs> it was to all right. I see. I didn't look at it. Achieve consistency for the amount of time consumed by the main event. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, that's, and and, that's and right. yeah. That's right. Deadwood was a bull ring, right? And that just goes wicked there. Yeah. All right. Now I understand why they made the switch. Okay. Yeah. And it, we saw it a lot more on the, on the supercross side, but snowcross was, was very similar where, you know, adding to the fact that you're trying to fit into a time window when you're doing, you know, again, Deadwood's a great example, 20 laps on a really short track, like Deadwood, the track is so whooped out and so dangerous and destroyed by the end of that main event versus a, another track that has a lot more it's a lot more spread out and things like that so a lot of it too was to to limit the amount of grooming you had to do the tracks would last longer and things like that so some people love it some people don't like it i'm kind of indifferent but it's definitely i think something that's going to stick around for a while that's cool i'm just resistant to change being my age i'm just like hey how come we don't just run a number of laps but yet i, I easily grasped the difference in layout from Canterbury to Deadwood. I mean, look mm -hmm. at the, you know, the amount of gruelingness, how grueling it is on the athletes that of course is the, it would be smart to do, to do time-wise and, and achieve consistency on that deal. That way they kind of know how long it's going to be consumed on this deal and stuff. And yeah, there's a hell of a difference in, in track layouts and stuff on that. It's uh, you know, that makes sense to me now. I understand now. No, I like it. I just got, you're going to ask, you know, do I follow it much more buddy? And, and I just kind of, Missed it so much last winter, Spencer, that I did dive back in and start watching some of it on flow and stuff. And uh, mm -hmm. I got to tell you, I, I, I am amazed at how far Elias Ishuel has come. He was just nothing but a little wild dog Norwegian nightmare to me when he started. That's what they called him. He couldn't stay on the sled. He rode way over his head. I never thought he had a future. I said, Warner's going to shit can you, man. You ain't okay on the sled long enough. Well, now what is he just wrapped up his fifth consecutive national mm -hmm. title? Elias has really matured. I would shake his hand now and say, you're no longer, now he's the Norwegian prince or whatever. And he earns his new nickname now rather than the Norwegian nightmare. So I'm impressed with how that kid has matured. And isn't it Jordan LaBelle who wins basically every pro light race in the world? I mean, I don't think he, he hardly lost the final last winter. The LaBelle kid is just wicked. And so there again, you know, note number two here these days is just so much the same way when Joe and I covered it with Inside Snowcross. There's so much exciting young talent coming up through the ranks, you know, Nicholas Lorenz. And there's just, just so many ones coming up through. And I like it. And I like the current rider development programs. You know, they're, they're sort of mimicking what's happening in short track asphalt racing now. What mm -hmm. 
Jake De Silva and Lincoln are doing, as I'm sure Lincoln told you, it's kind of like rider development with one three mm -hmm. motorsports. They just signed a couple of kids last winter and all of a sudden put them on a map and all of a sudden the kids are on good equipment and with good wrenches and they were really riding good. The guy on a 122 had a hell of a turn on once he signed with them last winter. And so I like this rider development program. When a guy has been there and done that like Lincoln has, what better guy to coach these young riders, athletes along than Lincoln? And Jake can always turn the wrenches and get his sled dialed in and Lincoln can kind of tell him what lines to run and guy him around the track and so those programs i'm a big fan of and stuff i i'm crushed this week to hear nate Hengis finally threw in the mm -hmm. towel nate had 23 winners brother in this deal and i was always had huge respect for Hengis racing they cultivated tremendous talent up through the years almost think gula run for red for nate at one point and mm -hmm. uh, you know i was a little sad to see them go away and that kind of hurts when a big high quality heavy hitting national team backs out of the deal that hurts a little bit but hey new guys will come along some one of those kids' parents that had a little trailer will buy a holler, buy, buy the holler probably, and, and pretty soon there'll be just as many hollers, and this thing will stay going. I, for a while, didn't think ISOC was going to be sustainable when John Daniels first took it over and threw a lot of money at it and built it up like he did. I even had industry people tell me, Phil, this isn't going to be sustainable. This isn't going to take in enough money to keep with what he's putting into it. But obviously, he proved them wrong. He's still flourishing with it, and the way it's presented now is is good. The only thing anybody bitches on ever now is that you got to drop 150 with flow. And just if you're just a snowcross fan, if you don't give two two craps about stock cars, and you don't really want to watch dirt racing all year long. You're just a snowcross fan. You still got to pay $150 to get flow to watch ISOC races, right? It's not that free stream they always had linked off to their site and stuff. So I suspect for a while that hurt their fan base. I don't know if Carl Strabitsky would admit it or tell you just the opposite, really. I'd like to ask him personally, what did that switch over from free streaming over to flow due to your fan base, Carl? But it works. I mean, they have a high quality image they're 720 or 1080 and when you tune in on flow to isoc it's like you're right there it's really really nice and so just bottom line spent's been a lot of changes and but they continue to flourish at isoc and uh, man in conclusion i just really miss it here in the northeast i don't know i don't think the gasparities they just got out of it they'll never try to run a sanctioning body anymore and i don't know who else would but uh, it is missed here mr delabrier it is missed here in the northeast now i'll tell you that yeah and it's really unfortunate because I think we, you kind of don't think about it until you, frankly, really think about it. But we've had a lot of really high level guys come out of the Northeast probably over the last decade. I think there was a, there was a period of time where Shearing Speed Sports was running an all Vermont team between Lincoln Hunter and then Adam Ashline in the sport class. So, right. you know, those guys and then obviously Leo Patnode and then Montana Jess won a won a pro light title at ISOC. He's Massachusetts guy. I've had a lot of talent come from from New England as a whole and it they all developed in RMR and ECS and it it kind of worries me a little bit because that's where those most of those guys at least saw their first race and got them to want to start racing and I'm hoping there's not kind of like a a hiatus of of East Coast or New England talent over the next 10 years because we've just missed so many opportunities to put fast guys on the track at a regional level yeah, those days are done, dude. We fed the Nationals a lot of talent. You hit it on the head. We uh, we were the ideal farm system for them here in New England, and that's why they supported us. That's why they were affiliated with us. No doubt those guys were smart. They knew that having a connection with a strong, healthy regional circuit here in Northeast, right in the heart of snowmobile country, was to their advantage. Simply with the amount of talent, it propelled them. And when they came east, when they came to Salamanca, when they used to come to Rockingham Park in Salem, New Hampshire, you know, they always all could count on a 
joint event with the Northeastern Sanction Body. We'd bring a lot of sleds and it would just be a big, positive vibe, a great event. And it always was. Even in Valcor, all our guys went up back when they, I think their first couple winners before the Nationals got tossed out up there, they was, the ISOC was up there the first couple winners when Mr. Lorenz ran it. And it was huge combination events and stuff. It was really nice. But yeah, things have changed, my friend. The, the, the sport, she's had to adapt. Would you agree? I would agree. And I hope we... I, I had a couple points in here on this and it, I hate to be a Debbie downer. Cause that's what a lot of anytime us power sports people get together. All we do is complain about how we should be so much bigger, but there's definitely a generational gap, I would say. And, and Phil, you're my dad, rest his soul. You're only a couple years older than what my dad would have been, but you guys grew up in a generation where the snowmobile market in the seventies and before the 80s before everything crashed but everybody had snowmobiles the market was huge the market was selling 200,000 snowmobiles every year we had 200 manufacturers it was wild everybody grew up on sleds therefore those guys love snowmobiles they some of them were able to pass it down to my generation and some of us hung on to it some of us did it and didn't care but now there's so many less of my, there's so much less of my friends and people of my generation that ride sleds and I'll be the first to tell the average guy who says, hey, should I buy a sled? I'll be like, I don't know. You're going to ride it two or three times a year, but we love it and we're always going to ride. But I do fear a little bit for the next generation because I'm 100% going to try and get my kids into snowmobiling, but I have very few friends that love it enough to even try and kind of put that on their kids and see if they like it. So over the next 20 years or so, I'm... My fingers are crossed. I hope we get a bunch of snow. I hope everybody wants sleds, but I do have some apprehension about what it's going to look like and, and what the growth is going to look like. Yeah. You want to hear the, you and the Debbie Downer syndrome. You want to hear what's, <laughs> what we, you know, but we have to talk about this too, because it's, uh, it's all over the media. It's all over everywhere. Climate change, my friend. I'll mm -hmm. say two words. Climate change. We touched a little bit about the lean snow years. You think we had lean snow years in the past, brother? You wait till you see the mm -hmm. next 15 or 20. That mm -hmm. deal where you go and have a race in December somewhere, that's going to be a thing of the past. You aren't going to even be cold enough to make any snow in the mm -hmm. northern tier states for snow belt region. You're not even going to be cold enough to make snow at some point here, probably in my lifetime in December. And then by about the middle of March, it's going to be gone. And so your events will run from January. And ISOC's gone that way now, too, for God's sake. They race, they mm -hmm. don't race really much until they, do. they have one event, I think, in, in December. After Duluth went away, but now they try one in December, but that's iffy at best. And then they race basically from January, 1st of January, and they stuff the whole season into them between then and mid to late March because they mm -hmm. know outside of that, that weather window, man, is about gone. So climate change is going to change this thing. You want to ask what the sport's going to look like? I'm real glad I was involved, Spencer, the library in the prime years when I was, because it was peaking and huge, both regionally and nationally. Then you came along and you were involved in the, I don't know how to say it, the B tier level. It was dropped <laughs> out. It's not right. It's not insulting, but you were down no, no, in no. the, you were, yeah, okay, let's face it. You were nothing but a B tier rider. <laughs> I just love you so much. I got to say that you were nothing but a B tier athlete at best. No, you were a great racer. I'm only kidding because I love the, the, the era that in which you were in, it was a notch down from my prime era. And then now, you know, now it's piecemeal or almost gone. And so will we ever keep feeding big talent to this national circuit? No. How can that happen when you don't have a, 
viable active regional circuit with which to hone those skills and develop those young riders and athletes. No, our days of being a killer viable farm system for the national circuit are gone. So, you know, you, you had Longbook had me write a big dissertation, almost like a farewell thing. And I got a lot of shit for it online here a year or two ago. When sanctioned snowcross racing kind of went extinct here in Northeast, it hurt Longbook pretty bad and it hurt me too. And I, he had me write something on it and I put it up. And man, I got a lot of foul comments and a lot of terse response from it, Spencer. And I never intended to, you know, alienate them guys and piss them off. But I lost, unfortunately, a lot of respect to some of the snowcross guys here in New England when I put that up because... I was simply saying in reality. I was simply telling it like it was. I said, boy, this the ball has been dropped. We're going to never get this back. It's done. We're gone. It's too bad. Well, I, I was sort of negative. I was a little bitter. And I wasn't harsh about it. I was simply telling the facts. Man, people didn't like to see that and didn't like to read that. And they were pretty ugly. Some of the guys who had hung on to ECS in Gagne's era, in the last of Kurt Gagne's era, they were pretty ugly. There. Well, you thought you were behind this sport and you were a big part of the sport for years and now you're talking kind of negative about it. What are you saying all that? People follow you, Phil, and they're going to think it's dead and gone if they read that shit. I said, my friends, it is dead and gone. Just say goodbye to it. Let's let's acknowledge this. It's gone now here in New England. And they didn't really want to admit that. And they certainly didn't want to read Phil Whipple's article about it. But I was just telling it like it was. And uh getting it off my chest and Longbook asked me to, and I was nothing I wouldn't do for Longbook. He did a lot for me and we worked together really well for years. And I, and I felt just as hurt as he was when it all went away, when ECS went away and Gaspardi's tried and failed or it just didn't work out for him. And then somebody else kind of tried and they're still trying to kind of do something, as you know, here in Naples, Maine and kind of trying to keep this little teeny tiny super local thing going. And there's a few hardcore locals hanging to it and hanging it going, but man, and it's not like I don't, I ain't a proponent of it. I, I, I wouldn't, I, I offered even, you know me. I offered mm-hmm. to him to try to write some shit and try to, you know, because I, I wrote for the Sun Journal. I'm pretty connected still to this day in main media. They kind of could have could have taken advantage of me this past winter at NESX and worked some media stuff. And hell, I'd have probably donated a half a dozen press releases because I can these days. And I would have been glad to help them with it. But they didn't respond. They chose not to utilize me. And so it's uh, like I say, it's a dead horse now, brother. And it's hurt. It's, it hurts a little bit. But hey, I had a lot of fun. I got a lot of great memories. And uh, I'm still proud of the contribution I made to the sport of snowcross for 15 years. And I hope young people like yourself who sort of came in toward the end of my era. I just hope guys like you and Lincoln Lemieux and the Pat Nodes and Montana Jess and all those people whose careers that I documented for so many years just appreciate that contribution. That's all, Spencer. Phil really does have stories for days. I'm glad we were able to get into the nitty-gritty of some of those glory years of RMR. I'm sure most of my East Coast friends, much like myself, think very fondly of those years. As you can tell, there was a period of time where the regional series had top-level talent that could win races anywhere, but most of them stuck around because the competition was enough to keep things competitive. As the faster guys started to move out west and test the waters in the national circuit, one by one, the rest of the field followed suit, and the series has never been the same. I did some digging, and just for everyone's reference, in the last 10 years, East Coast regional riders are responsible for two sport championships and four pro light championships at the national level. My fingers are crossed that racing in New England can someday gain some traction once again, but my expectations are measured. Thanks again for everybody who's listened thus far. I really appreciate it. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes and follow us on Instagram for some more background info on our guests. Take care, everyone.